Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now age of radio Uh, this is crazy. Yeah. Like, I, I, our guest, your guest that you were going to pull at the last second, he had to cancel. Wait, a ghost had to cancel. A ghost had to cancel. He's what kind of it, bullshit is that? What are they doing? God, Jason, it's an election year oh. in Republican heaven. That's that is true. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's on the fives. But we got ones. a living, we got a living person here at the very last second, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the forty-second president of the United States, Mr. William Jefferson Clinton. Oh, hi, hi, guys. How you doing? Man, it's so good to be here. Hey, guys, I just want to say, I, I stopped by today. I was in the area. I was flying around because, you know, when you're rich and famous like me, I, I can fly around in a pandemic and nobody's going to say boo. But I was so excited because, you know, fellas, I just want you to know, I really like your podcast. Oh, thanks, Bill. Thanks, Bill. That's really nice to hear as, as a as kind of a fan of the character of you, if not the man, uh, I've enjoyed you for many years. Uh, well, I, I understand that, and I get it. I'm a piece of shit. I understand. Uh, yeah, Bill, you're I, kind. Of, you're kind of the worst. I'm, yeah, I understand. And and I'm trying. I'm trying to be better about it. But man, it's it's tough. It's tough because when you've been as rich and you know kind of as powerful as I have for as long as I have, man, it's is real difficult not to just do bad things. That's yeah. You know, I get you. And, and I, I think that's why a lot of my peers have found Jesus, because I think that helps them. But, man, that's that's a tough pill to swallow, man. <laughs> but you know what? And it don't matter no more, because in my old days, I wouldn't have said nothing like that. But, man, I'll tell you, like, when you ain't running for politics, man, you don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I appreciated your appearance at the inauguration, Bill. It was a nice little endorsement. Oh man, you gave. I was happy to be there. It was a beautiful day out there, man. It was real nice. It was real good. Joe's a fine, fine senator. He's been around a long time. And him and I, I tell you, 1988, Joe Biden and I was during the Democratic National Convention, right? You know, it was the next night he was supposed to go up on stage and, and endorse the next guy, Dukakis. But uh, Joe and I, man, we went out. Uh, we went out on the town, and I tell you, we must have played 16, 17 straight games. Games of Pac-Man, because there was a laundromat down the road from the DNC. Joe and I, we went down, and man, we just had a fistful of quarters. I don't know where we got them. I think I think uh, Strom Thurmond just shoved them in my hand and said, son, you go have a good night. I don't think he wanted to show up, but man, we went down to that laundromat. I tell you what, we played 16, 17 straight games of Pac-Man. Uh, and I got a high score of somewhere around 475,000. Guys, did you tune into this podcast to hear about British films? I apologize. Man, I look, I like British films, but I tell you, I man, I love Pac-Man. Mm-hmm. Oh boy, Pac-Man is a hell of a game. And Joe Biden is a good Pac-Man player. Man, he's good as me. 
All right. Um, so you played some Pac-Man. Uh, so, Bill, thanks for coming. Uh, wait, wait. Well, I, I came here for a reason. Oh, okay, okay. I just wanted to say you boys are doing a good job. I like that you're promoting the podcast. And also, I, I've heard you've had a friend of mine on a couple times. Uh, I'm I'm real tight with Southern Santa Claus. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, he's a good fellow. We he, he come over uh, Camp David one time. And we played golf for a weekend, and man, we got into some trouble. We went to tell you what, you know, at Camp David. You ever been to Camp David? Yes, several times. Well, okay, if you remember Camp David, there's Pete's place. Mm. It's down there, and right? two guys and a girl. It's, it's actually it's actually a franchise location of Comet Pizza. They got the best pizza. It's actually a franchise location, Comet Pizza. They got the best pizza. We went down there one night, and we must have played 16, 17 games of Pac-Man because I got a Pac-Man machine in oh, there. <laughs> it, was, it was a hell of a night. But look, <laughs> I'm not even talking about Pac-Man as much as I want to. I just want to see you boys do a good job, uh, and I'm here to plug my new podcast, uh, Bill Gets It Real. And I have on uh, uh, Alfonso Ribeiro uh, right. once a week, and Alfonso and I sit down and, and we talk about Pac-Man. So if you guys want to tune in. Oh, I think the main reason you invited me here was because invited me here was because you watched a movie last week, didn't you? Was it Small Faces you watched? We watched Small Faces. Yeah, it's a good movie. So uh, I endorse that one. So anyways, I got to go, fellas. Been great. Been great having you here. Um, is there a door or how do I get out of here? Just, just take the jetpack. Well, it's not my jetpack. I, I did not bring my jetpack. Just take that one. It's a spare. Look, you got to understand something. I'm not dead. So I don't need to go to Republican heaven yet. Okay. Well, I mean, I'll call you a cab, Bill. All right. See you later. Slam. Get a cab for William Jefferson Clinton. We'll have that right out of the way for you, sir. Oh, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. God bless you. That was a really nice cab uh, dispatcher. The longest opening <laughs> we've ever done, Jason. <laughs> Bill Clinton would not leave. Well, he's a, he's got the gift of the gab, Bill Clinton. Oh my! God. Do you remember? Do you remember that time he came, he uh, came down to uh, a stand-up show we did and uh, 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 said a few words and nobody cared. That was a great time. I, I appreciate the um, the weekly occurrence, the weekly um, tradition of the reference just for me. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> oh, my God. I am Brendan. I'm Jason. And this is a podcast called For Scream and Country. And it is a podcast. It, it continues to be a podcast. We have not transitioned to television or feature film yet. Not yet. I'm- Although I've already pitched the idea of doing a feature film about the top British podcasts, <laughs> or British film-related podcasts, of which we would be one. Again, it's again another reference just for me. I still think it's a good idea, and that's out there for the fans now. A feature film about us rating British podcasts. Yeah, and and only one set. We we shoot it on seventy millimeter film, and we do it in a wood cabin. It'll it'll be one camera setup, like uh, like my dinner with Andre. My dinner with Andre and Quentin Tarantino will direct it. Oh God. I think he would just be like. I think you would just be super bored the whole Actually, time. Actually, I, you know what? The thing is, is that I've never tried cocaine, but if I was gonna, it'd be with Quentin Tarantino. Well, yeah, obviously. Yeah. I mean, you'd want someone who knows what to expect. That's right. I, I need a mentor to walk me through it. <laughs> it's like when I did mushrooms for the first time. Yeah. I needed someone there who had done it. Yeah. 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 Who was that? I mean, I didn't do mushrooms. Oh, well, that's unfortunate. I've missed out. I did it once. Oh, come at me, come at me, coppers. That's right, cops. We, I got, we got a we got a <laughs> rebel over here. I ain't going back to jail. <laughs> you was in there for mail fraud shut up <laughs> jason um this is this is for screening country we talk about yeah. the top 100 british films uh, the bfi top 100 british film institute top 100 british films of all british time as devised in the year of our lord 1999 from a panel of what i have to assume were white men 
How dare you? <laughs> Judging from the movies that we've done so far, yes. Um, but yeah, we are talking about those movies. And, and we roll the dice every week, almost every week. So basically what we do. And this week we are talking about a film on the list. But before we talk about this week's movie, we need to read comments from our listeners about last week's film. Small Faces? Small Faces. We got comments. There's some comments. Some comments. Yeah, some comments. Um, not too many, but we do have some comments to read about the movie we talked about last week, Small Faces. Yeah, and understandably, this is this is a movie that is much, probably well, I know is much harder to find these days, and uh, uh, it's small and it's for cool people. So these these five comments are from all the cool people, I guess, mm. that listen to our podcast. Well, the rest of you could be cool if you can find this thing and watch it. Spoiler alert! Some of these five comments, I don't think they have seen the movie. So. Well, they they at least had, uh, they at least think of it enough to answer the question. And of course, you know, there was more, but you had to cut it down. You have to whittle it down from ninety-five to five. That's right. All right. Uh, so our first comment comes to us from Raymond Townsley, mm. and Raymond says he did watch it a long time ago. He says, "I do live in Glasgow, so along oh. with train spotting, it was a teen fave." Nice, legit. Thank you, Raymond. Yeah. We appreciate getting a, a legitimate Glaswegian. Writing in on the podcast to talk about a movie like that. So thank you. Uh, Rachel Cunningham writes in next, Brendan. Richie says, Cunningham? No, Rachel Cunningham. Oh, okay. It's just her niece, you know. It's just his niece. They're not close. Yeah, well, I mean, um, also the niece of a, a fictional character. Fictional character, yeah. I know yeah. it's weird how that works, but, you know, sometimes there's transfer between dimensions. I saw the man in the high castle. I know how this works. His name's not really Ron. Uh, she says, Rachel says, I have this on VHS. And then she has a smiley face of her laughing. It's great. And appealed to me at the time it came out when I was obsessed with all things 60s. My dad grew up just outside Glasgow during this time, which I always found intriguing. Yet another connection to Glasgow. My God, thank you, everyone. We- notice notice, these are the people that have seen it. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, it makes sense. It's yeah. great. I love it. I, I would be shocked if someone in the States at the time had seen this because I don't think it had any sort of sign- – It did. well, it didn't have any sort of significant release here at all. Dirk I mean, Banner all- from Alabama says, I love this movie. <laughs> God damn, I love me some small faces. <laughs> They're no pretty little faces I can put in the palm of my hand. Just like my cousin who's got a real small face. It reminds me of him when I watch it. Oh, hold on. Santa Claus is coming. He's local. <laughs> I'm on vacation. <laughs> See you in almost a year. Adam Jurez, or Jurez, says, I just saw it recently for a podcast. Ooh, Ooh which podcast hey. could that be? You we could have given you a free plug for whatever that's worth. Yeah. <laughs> uh, besides having a hard time deciphering who was who for the first third of the movie, I thought it was pretty good. Also didn't realize it was set in 1968 when it felt like a modern story. Not sure what that says about Glasgow or my observation skills. Uh, neat, <laughs> neat little youth movie with some pretty good performances from the actors. Yeah. I also, I don't think if, if I hadn't read about the 60s thing, I might not have caught on right away either. I think so, I think even you start, I think the clothing to me gives it away. Like it seems yeah. like very old school just, clothing. Yeah, but the, just like the down and out thing, because yeah. it was made the same year we talked about train spotting, but also a year before the full Monty. Mm. So at the same time, I'm like, it, it, to me, a movie's repre- representation of the UK during the 90s is yeah. pretty much all grim. Yeah, I mean, that's just to be fair. And then the UK certainly had its grim periods uh, over the years, you know, the post-war period and, or during the war even. That was pretty grim. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that's just one of many. <laughs> during but, arguably worse than post. Go ahead. Well, all-time commenter Sharon Horwat writes in and Sharon says, I've not seen it! This might be your catchphrase. <laughs> we should, Sharon, if you want the movie, we'll get it to you. Um, I've not seen it, but I was looking at IMDb, and it turns out that the director of Small Faces directed the 2016 remake of Whiskey Galore. 
And that that is a coming soon That'll for be sure. Coming soon in the future, yeah. What crazy that that guy A is still alive. And oh wait, okay, right. It was only nineteen. Again, I was confusing it with the actual time. See, for me, I thought it was. It, it felt so authentic that I thought it was from the sixties. So right. You thought it was mean. a contemporary piece. Yeah, it was absolutely. made in the sixties. Um, okay, our final comment is from Eolin Allen. Got to get him on this. Uh, Elon. Elon. I, I I maintain it's Elon. Elon Allen. So he tells me different. Um, of course. Gotta gotta ch- chime in when we talk about a uh, Glasgow film. Absolutely, uh, I haven't seen the film. Oh, <laughs> but just to note, he okay. just wants to note that a Glasgow handshake, which you talked about being a headbutt, yeah. is actually when someone smashes a bottle over someone's head. Oh, a headbutt is commonly referred to as a Glasgow kiss. Oh, well, that makes more sense to me. There you go. Nice, nice. <laughs> a little, and, and a Glasgow smile is what uh, uh, Tommy, Tommy. Robbins? Tommy something? He's a Scottish actor. Tommy Davidson from In Living Color. No, no, he's got the, it's like the scars that are like this. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones. No, I'm pretty sure it's not him. No, he was in, he was in uh, Sons of Anarchy. He was in Braveheart. Oh, Tommy Boy. Okay, yeah, Chris Farley had a fucking Glasgow smile. (laughs) I don't, I know. They cut my face open! Well, Jason, those are our comments. So thank you, everyone, for uh, for for piping in. And um, if you haven't seen that movie, check, seek it out. It's worth it. It's a cool. It's a cool watch. Yeah, we gave it a solid recommend. Yeah. I would check it out. And we maintain that, and we reaffirm it now. <laughs> Count all the recommendations. Stop the steal. <laughs> our last thing we do here is compare the BFI list to the AFI list. That's the American Film Institute. So Small Faces was, was number 98 mm. so on the BFI. What obscure American movie are we comparing it to this week? The James Cagney vehicle Yankee Doodle Dandy. Is that a musical? Uh, it's about uh, a producer, like a musical producer. Huh. Uh, or a performer. I, you know what? I saw it once. Didn't care for it. Interesting. I've I wasn't... Seen- I've seen a few Cagney movies in my day, but I've not uh, not seen that one. There's a nice casual blackface scene. Of course there is. Um, it, I mean, at least it's not a character in the movie that's supposed to be black, but it is a scene showing, like, one of their performances as a family, as the whole family wearing blackface. And I'm like, uh, okay, that doesn't yeah. come across as innocent anymore. No, well, I mean, the, the, in the minstrel style, I suppose. Yeah, well, they I, they just quickly danced across the stage, and I was like, okay, well, there it is. That That was a joke for a long time. A long, long time. I mean, it still kind of is sometimes. And although these days, Brendan, they uh, they look for that stuff. Yeah. Because I think about like how many blackface jokes I've seen in Looney Tunes cartoons. <laughs> There's a Hitchcock movie with blackface. Uh, is it The Lady Vanishes? No, we won't be doing Is it Psycho? No, no. It's it's one of the lesser, it's much lesser. Family known Plots. One. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it wasn't his most recent one. <laughs> I would like my last movie to include a blackface. And before. if you could throw in some slurs. Yes, and then we should eat a couple of steaks and I shall grab the actors. So clearly, um, based on my comment, yes, this one over Yankee Doodle Dandy. And Jason, yeah. by default. By default. My <laughs> usual position. But now we have to talk about this week's movie, Jason. We have to talk about the, the draftsman and his contract. Ooh. You might call it the draftsman's contract. Some sexy... Contract or perhaps sexist contracts? That's up to you to decide. Mr. Shandos was a man who spent more time with his gardener than with his wife. They discussed plum trees ad nauseam. He gave his family and his tenants cause to dread September, for they were regaled with plums until their guts rumbled like thunder and their backsides ached from overuse. He built the chapel at Fovent, where the pew seats are of plum wood. So the tenants still have cause to remember Shandos through their backsides on account of the splinters. At last the glittering queen of night 
So that little, brief little monologue, as well as that very uh, dramatic music. Harpsichord music, you might even say. Yes. Um, means, can only mean one thing. Jason, Obviously. I haven't done that joke in a long time. Leave me alone. I feel like you do that joke every week. I don't think, I don't think, that's I, don't okay. th- I don't think so. <laughs> uh, we're, it means only one thing. We are talking about number 80 on the list, which is the Draftsman's Contract, released in the year of our Lord, 1982. Um, Jason, this is a, this is a film that I would say, uh, compares on a similar wavelength of other movies we've covered, like Caravaggio. I think a little bit of the go-between. Sure. I think a little bit of like even period pieces, like Sense and Sensibility, yeah. and even remain uh, Room with a View, this, stuff like that. This uh, absolutely is a period piece, um, but it's it's not exactly the typical period piece that we've come to expect. It is n- well. We'll get into this, and I'm just going to say right now, it is nothing like I expected. Like no. this movie took some turns that I did not see coming. Then that's the fun thing about doing this list is that we sometimes have expectations, and we go into them, and they are either uh, exceeded uh, often, or they are, as in the English patient's case, perhaps destroyed, perhaps destroyed to pieces, pissed on, and buried, it's, it's, and set on fire. And it's thankful for us that, that I believe that you know, without giving away too much, that this is the former for us. And I wasn't sure if it was going to be. So this movie, we'll get into the plot in a second here, but this movie, I was unsure during the first, like, five, ten minutes. Mm. I was like, I'm not sure where this is going. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, we'll talk about it. Let's talk about who's in this movie, Jason. There's no nobody, like, super... Yeah. I don't think I know anyone in this movie. Yeah. I, I was looking up some of the uh, filmographies, and yeah, I don't... I, these, these must be very British character actors, because I don't really know much. Well, I think it's a very low budget, too. Yes, absolutely. Um, but we have Anthony Higgins starring in this movie as Neville, the draftsman. Now, I went through Mr. Higgins' filmography, and the one role that I recognized him from was he played one of the Nazis in um, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Or I guess you would just call it Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, how dare you? I'm sorry. Was he a prominent Nazi? Well, his name was Gobler or Gebler or something like that. But he was there. He was like in. I mean, I don't, he may have had a few lines, but it wasn't wasn't much. Oh, sorry. You mean Goebbels, Joseph Goebbels? No, he did not play the propaganda minister <laughs> in in Raiders of the Lost in Ark. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, because they had that whole subplot with the entire Nazi I command. <laughs> Uh, so we have Anthony Higgins. We have Janet Suzman as Virginia Herbert, Mrs. Herbert, the one who hires the draftsman. Uh, we have Dave Hill briefly as Mr. Herbert. Mm. Uh, we have Anne Louise Lambert as Sarah Tallman. She is, I believe she's Mrs. Herbert's daughter, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Tallman played by Hugh Fraser, who is the man who is, uh, set to wed her or already has. Yeah, no, they're already married. Already married. Um, we have Neil Cunningham as Thomas Noyes. He's one of the other gentlemen at the, uh, at the estate. Yes. I believe he is... Is it, was he the gardener who, or not the gardener, but he was like the guy that managed the estate and had been formerly promised. To yeah, he was the one that had been formerly promised Mrs. to Mrs. Herbert yeah. and holds a little contempt for Mr. Herbert. Yes. Um, and then we have David and Tony Meyer as these brothers, these like twin brothers. Yeah, these weirdo twins with their French fucking makeup. Um, and Michael Feast as the statue, which oh. we'll talk about. We'll get into that okay, for sure. I was wondering who played the statue. Yeah, Michael Feast, of course, yeah. you know. So, I mean, let's get into it. This plot, uh, Jason, just to start off with, and when we tell you this plot, folks, you will be like, that sounds like the most boring shit imaginable, I think. Well, we'll see how uh, how we describe this. So, Well, I mean, it's, a draftsman, it's, the, it's all about the draftsman's contract. Now, in this context, Brendan, yes. a draftsman appears to be a person who will draw a picture of something for you. Yes, and I actually, that's my first question. 
Was this a significant thing at the time? Because this is like late 1600s. This is the sort of thing that rich people would be able to do. Uh, because there was, you know, uh, today you may have heard of Patreon. Yeah. Which is oh, a platform. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah for, for getting money. But in the old days, that Patreon comes from just straight patronage, which where rich people would pay artists and such to do things for them because they were rich and they could afford that sort of thing. So uh, a draftsman like this guy, I imagine, would go around to rich people and charge them a fee and then he would draw a picture of their homes. I think it was, I think the draftsman part was that he specifically drew like buildings and homes and, you know, like landscapes and things like that. Mm hmm. Um, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I'm not going to pretend I did a deep research on this, but uh, I'm pretty good at context clues. And yeah, just like to me, it sounds like this is a very upper class symbol oh, yeah. of like accomplishment to have a sketch of your of your estate or your house yeah. or whatever. Because apparently this guy seems to be in, in enough of demand that he can be a dick about it. Oh yeah, he's like an arrogant, like he's an arrogant artist, yeah. essentially. Yeah, but, but that, that that to me means he's a, a successful artist. Because yes. if you're not a successful artist, it would seem that you'd be much less likely to be a stuck-up prick. Yes. Um, so essentially, he is hired to draw a house yep. by this lady, by this lady, uh, Mrs. Herbert, for yeah. her husband, for who, her husband, who is going away, who's going away for 14 days mm-hmm. um, to quarantine. Yep, <laughs> he's, he's he's been exposed to COVID nineteen yeah. in sixteen ninety four. Yep, and uh, yeah, no, he's going away for fourteen days, so she wants this guy uh, Neville to draw the house. So he comes by and he does that. But in the meantime, he antagonizes many of the people that live there because he always wants people clear out of the shot. Yes. He has his little grid set up. Yes, that was really cool. cool. Yeah. Very much reminded me of like a movie camera thing too. Or even a, a, a film camera. A lot of film, yeah. older film cameras you get have that nine or the three by three grid over the, the lens for doing thirds and whatnot. And yeah. he has that physical grid in front of him so that he can kind of work on the quadrants of the photo well that's probably not the right word but you know like the, i think well yeah i know what quadrant you implies four and some of them are four but most of them are not you just call them drants drants sure <laughs> work on the drants, drants yo <laughs> but no he's yeah he has this grid set up he's doing all his paintings everything's going well he's kind of pissing people off and the movie kind of turns into a bit of a murder plot hmm. um because mr herbert turns is, out he's kind of a dickhead which one mr herbert what do you mean? Well, he comes across as kind of shitty, and uh, he doesn't seem well-liked by his family, based on mm. my interactions with them. Um, based, based on your interaction, your personal interaction? My personal interaction with, with Mr. Herbert, yes, of course. Uh, he's a real dickhead. But it was clear, it's clear the wife and the daughter don't particularly like him, and I think part of that is because of his priorities in life. As they say at one point that his priorities are like his land, his business, his money, and then his wife. Like, so... That's part of the reason I think why how, she how, wants to get him drawings of his land because he she believes that he'll appreciate that. House garden horse wife is the order. House garden horse wife. Yes, right. Because she said he knew he had a garden but didn't know he had a wife. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no. So Mr. Herbert shows up dead, and the the movie is and then the movie shifts to a kind of a murder mystery, and I'll just leave it at that, and we'll kind of get into it. Yeah, and, but it's not like right away. So he no, he it's takes late off. into the movie. He he takes off on on this vacation, but it doesn't really come up again until um, Mr. Neville is confronted by the daughter, mm-hmm. who starts talking about how he's drawing these drawings and believe, and implies that he was involved in the murder of uh, his father. But let, we'll get back to that. So let, let's, let's yeah, start let's over. let's start. Let's let's listen to the the one of the early scenes here. I want to listen to a bit of the um, the deal being made between the draftsman and uh, Mrs. Herbert. Yeah, it's because 
as we said, so she's been going at him really hard because she wants him to do this for her, but he doesn't want to do it because as he says at one point, like my, my price is based on the amount of pleasure I expect to receive. And I do not expect to receive much pleasure. Right. And we also have, um, uh, Mrs. Herbert's daughter trying to help out and getting him to do, to do the, the, you know, the drawing of the houses as well. We don't really know a lot about why this is happening. Like we know that she says what Mrs. Herbert says is I want to, this is for my husband Mm. and I want it to rekindle our, our, our romance. The implication I get early on before you play this, I'll just say the implication I get early on is that he's going to uh, wherever to fuck some random person. And that he does that pretty regularly and that she blames herself and that she wants to get these drawings to like somehow rekindle their relationship and make him kind of realize what he has. That's the implication in my mind from the outset. Mm -hmm. My father's property, Mr. Neville, is a little more forward than humble. And since humility in a building is not antithetical to you, perhaps I can prevail on you to draw my father's house. Ah, the same proposition from a different quarter. A concerted effort naturally intrigues me, but I feel, madam, things being as they are, may I be bold, I do not think that you or your mother could afford my services. Why not enjoy our patronage? Come and walk in Mr. Herbert's garden tomorrow. Madam, I cannot say that I would not be delighted, but I fear, despite your persistence, that I have work to do up and beyond this coming apple season and will be in the service of Lord Charbra until next year's apples have all been drunk as cider. Your mother, madam, is excessively keen to have this house down on paper. Or perhaps it is you that is keen. And your mother is merely your surrogate. I admit, Mr. Neville, to being a supplicant on my mother's behalf. But she does not want it for herself, but for her husband. Well, the supplication, then, has a long and diverse path. I am flattered. But may not Mr. Herbert himself do his own commissioning? The point of the exercise, Mr. Neville, is to avoid that one thing. You, Mr. Neville, are to be the instrument of a hopeful reconciliation. Mr. Neville, how can I persuade you to stay with us at Compton Anstey? You cannot, madam. But you can be bought, Mr. Neville. How much will it cost? More than you can afford, madam. But I must confess my prime reason is indolence. I increase my price in proportion to my expectation of pleasure. I do not expect great pleasure here, madam. So the ultimate deal they come down to is something along the lines of there was an eight pound, um, eight pound per day fee, mm-hmm. or was it per day or per drawing? I don't know. I, it's one I think it's two. per drawing, but it was 12 drawings, 12 days. That's condition one. Then it's like eight pounds per drawing. But then there's also uh, another clause in this contract, which is uh, that uh, uh, Mrs. Herbert must make herself available in private. For his pleasure. For the purposes of his pleasure. Which, uh, you're going to fuck me. Yeah. And and that is exactly what this guy does. He took this job so that yeah. he could fuck this, I don't want to say old lady, but this like, you know, certainly older lady. Older lady, yeah. Yeah. And and I don't think he necessarily has any b- designs beyond that. Like, I, I think he just likes the idea that he is able to fuck a married woman. To fuck a married woman, yes, because of his position of power. That is the kind of power he seeks. He's not like trying to like get her. He's not trying to become the lord of the estate or anything. No, no, no. And I think this movie is a lot about like power dynamics, yeah. right? And, and early on, certainly, uh, Mrs. Herbert doesn't seem to be into this at all. Like this seems to be a desperate move on her part for something that she otherwise wouldn't be able to have. She is disturbingly not into it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is like like disturbing. What but I mean that, by that is like the, it comes off 
on the brink of like non non yeah no absolutely that the first time for sure absolutely yeah. it doesn't really seem very consensual I mean it is sort of but like it's clearly she's not into it and but as as it goes on it it changes like like so we start off like that but then later on in the relationship it's very like matter of fact mm-hmm. she's not like sad about it but she's also not into it right she's just like they're literally having like a very like dry conversation as they're preparing for him to fuck her correct me if i'm wrong but the first time they have sex mm. she like vomits right after right? yes she does absolutely yeah. she comes out she's so disgusted or or i don't know if she maybe swallowed a load or what she did but but whatever she did it made her very sick <laughs> oh god Such and he strikes me as a bit weird anyways so we, we don't see too much detail of what they do i mean it's assumed that they just have sex but who knows what else is going on who knows man actually let's listen to him uh talk about uh, how he's gonna do his drawings because i think we need to have an idea of how precise and to the letter he is for drawing number one from seven o'clock in the morning until nine o'clock in the morning the whole of the back of the house from the stable block to the laundry garden will be kept clear. No person shall use the main stable yard gates whatsoever, and no person shall use the back door or interfere with the windows or furniture of the back part of the house. Yeah, so I just wanted to hear kind of his, like, very precise, like, I'm going to do each painting each day between these two hours. I don't want anyone in the way. Um, at one point, there's, I remember there's, it's like day eight or nine or something, and he's like, if you have animals out in the field, I suppose they can be there. Mm. <laughs> As if they have any say over that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I like the one scene at one point where he goes and he just chases off all the sheep. <laughs> Just runs them off so that he can have his shot. But I get it, too. As an artist, he wants a consistent canvas, and he wants to be able to do it as best as he can. There's even a line at one point where someone says, oh, he has godlike powers to clear everyone out. What the, what does he do about the birds singing? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Can't do much about that, buddy. No. But yeah, so he's carrying on this affair. And what I think is really interesting about this movie, and I think r- what kind of pushed it over the edge for me, is that the whole time you're watching it, you think it's this, yeah. and it's over here. Like, yeah. it's something completely different. A whole different other thing going on. going on that he's not aware of, and that we as the viewer are clearly not smart enough to catch on to. And would kind of flip the whole thing on its head. Yeah. Because you're following, and you... I mean, I'm not saying Neville is likable. No. But you start off, you don't like him at all. Like but, he's, but he he's does a, have a certain charisma to him. Like he's he has got, a charisma. I love that. I love that actor's voice. Like he's got yeah. such a wonderfully sonorous voice. But then you notice as you go further, you start to be like, oh, and you kind of get on more of his side towards the end, right? Well, because he starts to, you know, it's like he he seems like he's in control from the start, but he's yeah, not. He's and, not. And as the movie goes on, we see that that change, or or well, not even change, but we see that revealed to us of no. He's not running the show. It's it's these ladies that are running the show, right? And and the movie makes a point of um, reiterating the reiterating the historical fact that at the time women could not own property. No, um, which is funny because I would argue in this movie the females, like you said, they kind of own all the guys. Yes, like, no, they're absolutely in charge for sure. Even if they don't have the the legal like the legal protection of that, they are running the show. It's like they they see every possible play in front of them and just perfectly they're very machiavellian i suppose in that sense like that's what they're thinking he's not like 
He's not thinking that way. Neville doesn't think that way. Neville's an artist, right? He has this a vision of what he's going to do. He has his plan. He goes in, he gets his contract. He wants to take advantage of that and then move on with his life. But they're not thinking short-term like that. They're thinking more long-term. Well, I would also assume that Neville and people of his ilk, especially like Mr. Tallman, like yeah. the other guy that's there, or, you know, Mr. Noyes, they don't have the idea that these women could be up to something mm. more clever than they think because they they would I don't think they would ever believe that these women were smarter than them. No, no, that's something that would never even enter into their heads, the idea that it was a woman that was smarter than them. And if you mentioned it, they'd probably laugh in your face. Like, come on, are you silly? Like, what? what, is the dog going to run the house? Like, come on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it's, uh, it, it's, it's interesting, too. So um, I would say <laughs> this is the most sexual movie Mm. That from the, the, this is the least amount of, uh, this movie, when I, when I saw that we were doing this movie, it's like, okay, so it's very like stuffy and whatever. And I think this is the most, (laughs) most sexual movie with the least sexual sounding title Mm. and premise. Like it it, it, it didn't (coughs) seem like it was going to, like, it didn't seem like it was going to get that over, like over, overly sexualized. Mm. Um, but this movie is horny. It's horny. It's sexual, but I wouldn't necessarily say it's erotic. Like, I don't no. feel like much of this movie actually titillates. It, the sex no. is there and the horniness is there, but it's not meant to do that. It's it's very much... The sex is transactional. It's very transactional, absolutely. And, and we see that later on because we see, these, as I mentioned, the scene where Miss um, Tallman comes to Neville and explains to him what's going on and how she believes that he murdered the guy and basically blackmails him into a similar arrangement to the one that her mother and Mr. Neville have. But, but the difference being... That the wording in the contract says that he is there for her pleasure rather than the other way around in the original contract. Should we take a listen? Let's listen to that. I will proceed step by step to the heart of the matter. Perhaps to the heart of my father, Mr. Neville. Lying crimson on a piece of green grass. What a pity, Mr. Neville, that your drawings are in black and white. Now you rush ahead, Mrs. Tellman. The items are innocent. Taken one by one, they could so be construed. Taken together, you could be regarded as a witness to misadventure. Misadventure, madam? What misadventure? There is no misadventure. More than a witness, Mr. Neville. An accessory to misadventure. Madam, you are fanciful. Mr. Neville, I have grown to believe that a really intelligent man makes an indifferent painter. For painting requires a certain blindness partial refusal to be aware of all the options. An intelligent man will know more about what he is drawing than he will see. And in the space between knowing and seeing, he will become constrained, unable to pursue an idea strongly, fearing that the discerning, those who he is eager to please, will find him wanting if he does not put in not only what he knows, but what they know as well. You, Mr. Neville if you are an intelligent man, and thus an indifferent painter, will perceive that a construction such as I have suggested could well be placed on the evidence contained in your drawing. If you are, as I have heard tell, a talented draftsman, then I could imagine that you could suppose that the objects I have drawn your attention to form no plan, stratagem, or indictment. Indictment, madam. Genius. I am allowed to be neither of the two things that I wish to be at the same time. I propose, 
since I am in a position to throw a connecting plot over the inconsequential items in your drawing, an interpretive plot that I could explain to others to account for my father's disappearance. And there is no word now for my father having arrived in Southampton. I propose that we could come to some arrangement that might protect you and humor me. So in that in that in that conversation, which is very well written, by the way, I think that's great. I mean, the whole movie, yes. the writing is strong. The writing is strong, and the acting that it backs it up is is great. Yeah, yeah. but in that scene, she's like you said, she's basically like, "You're going to do what I want for my pleasure now, mm-hmm. because I think." Um, Mr. Herbert, it's not known that Mr. Herbert is dead at this point, yeah. but she says, you know, my father is still not back and he was supposed to be back around this time. Well, he didn't send word. He didn't send word. Yeah. He hasn't notified anyone about, you know, coming back. And, um, so, I mean, in all these pictures, you have little bits of my father's like clothing, like his riding boots, one of his shirts, uh, something else. And she's like, so, so as an artist, I know that, that like artists like to hint at things yeah. like deeper context. So are you doing this? You must be doing this because you know something about my father's whereabouts. Well, I don't believe all that. Mm. But if you do what I want you to do, I won't tell anyone else about it. And that's the thing is that he goes along with it. But I don't know that he actually had anything to do with the death of the father. No. I mean, as far as I could tell. I get, I no, I don't think so at all. And, and But he, I mean, uh, to be fair, Mrs. Tolman, quite attractive, and I can understand him sure. as a horny artist, maybe perhaps wanting to take advantage of that situation, even if the wording is slightly different in the contract. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's something. And and it's a, and then when we actually do see them have one of their like meetings, actually the only meeting between them, yeah. it's very obvious that she is in control. Mm-hmm. Um, and she <laughs> tells him to like get into a basin, and she's like, "You will take your clothes off, but I will not take mine off." <laughs> Which I thought was interesting. Which is quite a change from him just like very casually groping uh, Mrs. Herbert, or and fucking her behind an umbrella in the middle of the property. Yeah, that that caught me off guard. Yeah, he's like, oh, just kneel down for a second. Yeah, and exactly. Then we, just, yeah, we cut to outside the umbrella, yeah. and and the the performance is so like dry, like it, it's so matter of fact. Like he's not, he's not. It doesn't seem like he's, you know, relishing in it. You know, he's not like, get down on your knees, bitch. You know, he's he's like, just get down on your knees. Like, very casual about it almost. But but then he actually pushes her down. So there's clearly, it's not, you know, it's not tender. <laughs> and then we have the comparison of Neville um, to the other major male character at this estate, uh, Mr. Talman. Yeah. Who is the one wed to, I mean, wed to Mrs. Talman. Uh, and he's German or Dutch or something. I can't quite tell. It's never quite clear. And he's impotent. Yes. So they make a point of mentioning that, that he's impotent, because it, it contrasts nicely with Neville, who clearly is not impotent. And you'll notice that Mr. Herbert has but one child, a daughter, Mrs. Yeah. Talman. Yeah. Um, so, and, and yeah, exactly. And she can't, she can't own property. No, nope. uh, Mrs. Herbert could not own Certainly the property. Certainly not. No, a lady-owned property. <laughs> what are you talking about, Brendan? So it turns out that they are not stupid, Brendan. No, they got a plan. Yeah, and that plan involves using a wayward artist as a sort of a stud. And what does that mean, Jason? What is a stud? A stud, Brendan, is a horse that you bring in to breed your mare. And issue you a foal. So that's what you can, uh, you can interpret that in terms of humans. So they're bringing this dude in to fuck them both. 
in the hopes that one of them gets pregnant with a boy, mm-hmm. and thus they have an heir, and thus they have a male that they can control, and thus maintain this estate, even in the absence of Mr. Herbert. Uh, because normally, in a situation like this, Mrs. Herbert would probably have to remarry someone uh, to maintain any sort of like interest in the estate, and it would be probably be some other rich guy that already had an estate that would want more. Right. Or or uh, or an up and comer that didn't have an estate and wanted to ascend to the uh, landed gentry. Yeah. So that's I mean that's essentially what they do with Neville. But they don't want that clearly. They don't want some other man in their life because Mr. Herbert was kind of a shitbag. There's a reason that they had him killed. They had him killed. That's the big reveal, and I didn't uh, catch on to that. But it's right not away. even a reveal. That's the thing. It's no, never explicitly right. said. It's only implied. And I—that's what I was thinking by the end of the movie. And then I read the Wikipedia article, and it was like it laid it out. <laughs> well, I think I do think watching this that they did it. Mm. The movie again, like you said, is not explicit about it, but but there it's, are it's, little scenes that I picked up on. It's a very oh sorry, go ahead. Oh, so I was gonna say there's a little earlier scenes that I picked up on. There's one where Miss uh, Mrs. Talman asks someone else to go fetch Mister Herbert's riding boots hmm. because she sets them up in that pa- in that painting that Neville is gonna do. Oh, so is this all like a long con to like frame him for the murder? Oh, I a hundred percent. Because there's another scene where, and then there's another scene where Mrs. Herbert is it says to send uh, send word to Mr. Herbert, find out where he's going to be going through. Mm. Mm. I mean, what location are you going to? How, how obvious is that? Yeah, what route are you taking? And then we have another scene where Mrs. Herbert, I don't know if she's talking to Mrs. Talman, her daughter, or she's talking to another lady, but she says, I am grieving because my husband is away. And it's almost like, here's my theory. As far as I remember, I don't remember the other character in the scene. But if it's Mrs. Talman, then she's rehearsing, mm-hmm. like being upset and grieving. And if it's the other girl, then she's just saying, oh, I'm grieving because my husband is away. It's also a little bit of foreshadowing because at that point you don't know he's dead. Yeah, exactly. But it's just interesting those little clues they put in. Oh, yeah, they're 100%. Th- those two uh, managed to make Neville fuck them both yeah. so they could possibly have a male heir. And, of course, in those days, condoms, pfft. Oh, fuck. Just as useless then as they are now. Although they had um, uh, they had a lot of sheep, so they theoretically could have made them if they wanted to, but they didn't want to. <laughs> yeah, they, wait, were you saying they fucked sheep? No, no, I'm saying uh, condoms used to be made from sheepskin, Brendan. Yeah, no, You pervert. Yeah, you got that from fucking a sheep. You're being racist now because I'm of Scottish heritage. You're implying that I fuck sheep? Is that what you're doing? Yeah. I mean, Jason, you send me photos every day. Look, just because I do it doesn't mean you should think that I should do it just because I'm Scottish. Descent. Okay, fair. Thank you. I feel seen. Um, what were we talking about for sheepskin condoms? Uh, yeah, so yeah, they brought him in. They fucked him. Uh, ideally, getting knocked up, and then um, they... and then frame him for the murder of Mrs. Herbert's well, yeah, husband. Yeah, yeah, sort of. But but they he comes back to their estate, and this is an interesting bit. I mentioned it. It's in my bits and bobs TM, which we'll talk about later. But I'll, I want to mention it now too. Better throughout the course of the shit. movie, so when we originally came into the movie, Mister um, uh, Neville shows up. He's wearing all black. Mm-hmm. And everybody else seems to be wearing white. As the movie goes on, and especially after it's found out that Mr. Herbert is dead, everybody else is wearing black. But when Mr. Neville comes back, he slowly starts to wear more white until the end of the movie he's wearing all white, except oh. for his wig, which is still black. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't know what that specifically means, but like that, that is clearly happens over the course of the movie. Well, there's another scene, too. Uh, is similar- it maybe that he's now the innocent one, that he comes in as like in the black, and he's like, oh, he's like, oh I'm, the, I'm the king of the walk, and I've got this all planned out. And then by the end of it, he's the rube. I mean, I, I, I think you get... Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> um, I do think that um, 
Uh, what's interesting is that he... Okay, so there's a scene that's similar to that. And there's a scene where he come, when he comes back into the movie... Yeah. Um, and he's coming back to the estate. And you mentioned he's wearing a little bit more white. Yeah. Everybody else is wearing black because Mr. Herbert is dead. There's a scene where he's talking with Mrs. Herbert about coming back. And the light changes. Like, it starts out bright. Yeah. And it goes to dark. It's almost yeah. like a cloud is exactly coming over the light. And then the cloud dissipates and the light comes back. And it's almost like that's like a switch. Yeah. Right? It's like, oh, we're, we're, we're kind of turning everything on its head. Because, like, it's light. They start talking. You kind of realize, oh, the clouds are coming overhead. And then it's light again. And you're like, something happened there. I was wondering if that was intentional or if that literally was just a cloud that happened to roll by when it they were filming that scene. I like, am sure it's intentional. you could make the argument, too, this is a low-budget movie. And sure. they didn't necessarily have the money to reshoot a whole lot. I mean, yeah. But it did but I, seem I, kind of serendipitous. It, it seemed, yeah. It's almost like I'm, I'm wondering if, like, the director, like Peter Greenway, looked up in the sky and saw that there were, like, you know, clouds passing overhead and it was going back and forth. And he said, well, let's let's shoot the scene like this. Yeah. That may have very well been what happened because it looks natural. It does. Um, but it also kind of works for the movie, too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, um, and, 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 I mean, that's a... I mean, that's a good time as any to get into the whole, like, cinematography of this movie. So I think that's another thing that stands out. The opening ten minutes is just characters talking. Yeah. And apparently that originally, in the original cut of this movie, was like 30 minutes. 30 minutes. And this movie was over three hours. <laughs> Which I would have been interested to see that now that I've seen this movie. I would be interested to see that longer version and see all that extra stuff. But uh... Apparently Peter Greenaway was like, you know what? Uh, I don't think I'm going to hold people's attention. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the thing. That's, it's, a lot, it's a lot to ask of a person sitting in a theater. Not everything's Lords of Arabia. No. So, yeah, the opening sh- shots for 10 minutes, there's just these characters tearing, telling these, like, really, like, ribald stories. Like That's exactly the word that I thought, ribald. Yeah. Like, that's the only word that applies. Like, yeah, they're they're very, like, because, uh, what was it, the, the Mrs. Herbert talks about peeing at one point. Was that Mrs. Herbert that told that story? I thought it was. Or, okay. or, or maybe it was. It might be. Yeah, Tom, yeah, yeah. But no, he's talking sure. about, like, she would pee very, would pee like a racehorse. And I still do. <laughs> yeah, she said my father held these buckets of water. And she's like, they're still there. Some of them are me. Yeah, <laughs> I used to pee like a racehorse, and I still do. Oh. The one that stuck out to me was the two brother, the two twins. Yes, because um, they tell the racier stories. Very much like the Merovingians from the Matrix. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly the same. <laughs> and um, they tell a story about how this guy had like a builder and made this wonderful like uh, it's like a waterfall or something. And then the, the the person that kind of employed him went and was like wow, this is amazing. Like, could you make this again? Like, would you be able to make this again? And the builder is like, well, I suppose I could with the right equipment and everything. Mm-hmm. And so the, the guy just pushes him off the ravine and kills him because he's like, I don't want you to make this again. This is mine. And I, I thought that story was like, and then they're laughing, of course. Yes. And I'm like, oh, yes, let's laugh at the expense of the peasants. And um, folks, I apologize. All I could think about was, are they the Merovingians in the Matrix or was there a different name for them? Am I crazy? I, I want to make sure. I don't want to be wrong. I don't. Have you seen the Matrix Reloaded? Oh, once long time ago. So you can't answer my question. I cannot. Listeners. What fucking good are you? At BFI underscore pod or at Jason D. McLeod. Because I'm too good to use Google. That's right. Let us know what Google, Google <laughs> says. Even if it's a let me Google that for you link. Send, that, right. send that in. <laughs> but yeah, so what I was going to say is that the opening, just wanted to like kind of describe it a little bit, but I'm pretty sure it's all lit by candlelight. Hmm. Like, I don't think there's any other lights coming in. 
Yeah, and then that, and talking about Barry Lyndon earlier, that was a movie that used a lot of candles, and obviously this movie is very low budget and would not have had the resources that Stanley Kubrick did uh, for Barry Lyndon. But well, yes. does it look like that then? It, it, it evokes it, but like the it, it's clear Barry Lyndon was a movie that was shot with special cameras so that it was entirely candlelit and natural lit and, and looks very cool because of it. But um, So do you think there's additional lighting going on here? Cause like, I, I think so. I think to some extent, but mm. uh, just because they need to because they're using a very... It's clear that this movie, while the transfer doesn't look bad like it, this is was a very low budget movie that would have been made in the early 80s yeah i mean I, with most of that budget going to the costumes oh i thought you were gonna say most of it given to anthony higgins as <laughs> neville for his wonderful performance yes. i mean he, he deserves a paycheck that guy he's great they all, i mean i i mean argue for all of them getting a mm. paycheck mm. I agree with actors getting paid <laughs> but absolutely. the best boy grips go fuck yourself that's right you did that for free for exposure <laughs> Yeah, we're Lena Dunham Dunhaming this shit. We're gonna show our pussy on TV. Uh, no, just not paying volunteers. Oh, okay, I got you. Yeah, so I mean that stuff. Um, that stuff at the beginning. Uh, we talked about the light changing, and then everything from the opening after the opening ten minutes and on looks like a painting. It does, and, th- and there are specific shots that look like that. Like there's an early the first uh, scene where we see Mr. Neville take advantage of, of Mrs. Herbert. Um, she comes, she's standing by a window and he's laying on a couch and it looks like a Renaissance painting, like straight yeah. up. Did this guy direct Caravaggio? He should have. I mean, parts of this, I mean, probably would have been better. <laughs> um, parts but, of this did remind me of Caravaggio, like you said earlier. Um, there were shots in this, like you said, that looked like they were ripped straight from paintings. Mm-hmm. And uh, the same thing happened in Caravaggio. There were shots in that movie that I was like, oh, this is this must be... A reference to a painting. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Or, or at least his style of painting. Actually, interesting thing, and this is a fact, I don't know if you have it in yours, but apparently in the three-hour cut of this movie, it was a little more like Caravaggio, where there were anachronisms. anachronisms anachronisms? Anachronisms, that's a better way to there say it. There was anarchy in the UK. Yeah, anarchy in the UK. But like at one point, apparently, one of the characters like picked up a cordless phone. <laughs> oh, I did. Yeah, 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 yeah. But But clearly, this version of the movie cut around all that stuff, as far as I could tell anyways. Yeah, they left out some of that. Stuff. I I think the anachronisms would have been kind of interesting though to throw it in this movie. I because, mean, sure, because there's something about this movie. Yeah, and I mentioned this a little bit in a room with a view, but I think it's much more apparent here. But there's something in this movie that's super winking at us. Yeah, yeah, because it's like it's like yeah, this is a period piece, but I mean, come yeah, on, guys, it's a it's like a satire almost of period piece. We're all having fun here, right? Eh? Yeah, exactly. It's like a revisionist period piece. It yeah. has the clothing of a period piece, but there's more going on than in your typical classical period piece. Well, like we mentioned, it's a super horny movie. Absolutely. Um, and usually, and, and to be fair, like a lot of period pieces are quite horny, but but it's very British and restrained. Like, well, it, like sense, sensibility, where it's all this longing and like, you yeah. know, the social pressure and all this stuff. But this is much more explicit this about is, the horny. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like yeah. this movie, I mean, there's... There are a couple of scenes where they're, you clearly tell that they're having sex or mm-hmm. they're about to have sex. Absolutely. And you didn't get that in Sense of Sensibility. You certainly didn't get that in A Room with a View. No. Um, or, or uh, I mean, the go-between had that one shot. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, mo- mo- for the most part, no. So we got two big things left to talk about. I, I want to talk about two. Um, by the way, I know you haven't seen this movie, Jason. But this, to me, is like um, a version of The Favorite. Okay. So The Favorite is a movie that came out, I think, two years ago now. It's not the movie about Gary Hart. No, that's the... The Front Runner? The Front Runner. Okay, yeah. yeah. No, The Favorite is a movie with Emma Stone, Rachel Weisz, and Olivia Colman. Uh, there's like a love triangle kind of thing going on, like a power struggle love triangle. Yeah. Um, Olivia Colman is the queen. And uh, she, they... Um, 
that is another movie that is a period piece that directed by anyone. Like, say that was directed by, like, John Madden, who did, like, Shakespeare in Love. Not that John Madden. Okay. Um, <laughs> say it was, like, you know, Shakespeare in Love. Or even, like, Elizabeth. Like, the guy who did Elizabeth. Yeah. You would think, like, a nice period piece, yeah. fluffy costume drama, fun and everything. But the, but the favorite is like this. It's got a sinister edge, nice. and there's something else going on, and it's definitely earns it. It definitely earns its R rating. Yeah. And there's things that come up, and you're like, I don't know if that's period specific, but I think that's intentional. Like <laughs> just little things like that, just reminding me of it. So what I'm saying is, the favorite you hacks. You hacks. You stole it. You stole it from this movie. No, there's two big things left we need to talk about. And okay. I think first we need to talk about the ending of this movie. Yes. Well, actually, let's. We had. We do have a clip of the ending too. Okay. Did you want to play sure. the clip first? Let's play the clip first. Okay. Well, the, the ending we should mention. Um, at this point, uh, Neville is agrees to come back and do a, a like a thirteenth thirteenth drawing, Brendan, which is bad luck. Yes, bad luck. And because of this, he is uh, he is essentially cornered by all these gentlemen in masks. And, but, and notice too, he is drawing the statue, which is the statue where the body was found of right. Mister Herbert. Because they've set him up, they've they super set him up at this point. Super. And he's also just uh, made love to Mrs. Herbert again, which all these gentlemen know about. And this is like a sort of a trial. But this was on her. She she asked for this one. She did. Oh, this was this was intentional. To and we know him. why now. I am in no way responsible for Mr. Herbert's death. The affair is a mystery to me, though I have strong suspicions, Mr. Talman, Mr. Seymour, Mr. Noyce, and if they were here, indeed, of Mrs. Herbert herself and Mrs. Talman, ladies who both, after all, entered willingly into their contracts. Is that why, Mr. Neville, you have just abused Mrs. Herbert further? Ah, what a pity. That was clever. We now have a contract with you, Mr. Neville, and under conditions of our choosing. The contract concerning our present pleasure, Mr. Neville, has three conditions. It will be best served, sir, when you have removed your finery. Take off your hat, sir. Ah! My hat, gentlemen, has no contractual obligations with anyone. Contract is first condition, Mr. Neville, and there is no need to write it down, for you will never see it. It's to cancel your eyes. Since we have now deprived you of your access to a living, the shirt on your back will be of no value to you. It may well dress a scarecrow to frighten the crows. Or be scattered about in this state as ambiguous evidence of an obscure allegory. And the third condition of your contract, concomitant to the other two, and legally binding, and efficiently undertaken for what is a man without property, and foresight, is your death. God damn, that's rough, Brendan. Yeah, he gets, he, it's a pretty not fair trial. They, they gouge his eyes out, and they rip his shirt off, and then they murder him. They murder him. And they dump him in the river. Yep. And at that point, we see the second thing that we need to talk about. Oh, this, is, this, is, this could be a whole episode. This could be a whole episode, yeah. There is a gentleman who has been appearing through the movie as a living statue. Uh-huh. And he has been mostly nude. Sometimes peeing. 
Sometimes peeing, at least one time peeing, uh, mm-hmm. pretending to be a statue peeing, which was actually a pretty clever scene. I'll it was give it that. Funny. Yeah. Uh, but he appears throughout the movie in various places. He is posing. He he appears above the dinner table at one point, um, on top of the roof as they're eating dinner outside. Yeah, he definitely plays. A, he definitely uh, puts on an "It Follows" performance by standing on that roof. Yeah, for sure. Uh, <laughs> yes, if you know what I'm as talking. If I know what you're talking about. No, it follows. There's a scene. There's a creepy scene where a dude is like standing on a roof, and it just reminded me of that. I'd like to think that uh, uh, the director got that from this movie. Gotta, ha- gotta, got it's gotta be. Um, and yeah, and so we see him, uh, at one point we see him and he's actually dressed in like armor or whatever. Uh, he's, you don't see his dong for once and he gets run off. Uh, and then at the end of the movie, of course, he is sitting on top of the horse that is being drawn by uh, Mr. Neville uh, as he's murdered. And then he runs off and, well, he doesn't run off. He actually gets down from the horse and then eats a pineapple that is nearby and then the movie's over. And correct me if I'm wrong, but does he not, do we not see him planting some of the things of Mr. Herbert? earlier in the movie oh maybe i I don't remember i feel like we saw him put the shirt there which for a while i was like okay so he's some sort of metaphor he's some sort of like manifestation of something but then like you said there's a scene where a character arrives sees him standing there and interacts with him Yeah, kind of runs him off like hey get out of here yeah (laughs) and i was like oh so he's part of this yeah so he's he's clearly a real person that they can see but like i mean uh i still don't know exactly what he was representing and maybe i'm dumb and that's fine, but I don't get it. No, and I mean, here's the thing, though, because like you mentioned the three-hour cut of this movie, right? Mm. There was apparently um, a lot more about him and, and a little bit more of an explanation as okay. to what that character was. I kind of appreciate it more that we don't know. It's very David Lynchian. It, it is. <laughs> it feels almost like it almost feels like a, a piece pulled up right out of uh, Blow Up. Yeah, like that. You know that weird like. Um, tennis game at the end yeah. at the mines. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. It feels like something like that that just like kind of happens and you're like, huh. It's one of those great things where you wonder whether it's super deep or whether it's just random. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love that mime scene. Mm. That's cool scene. But I do, I do like the sta- the the idea of this like living statue though. Mm. Old Michael Feast. Yes, Michael Feast, uh, lucky and gentleman that put his dong on screen for all to see. A lot of dongs. Sorry, Sharon Horwath. I mean, he must be one of the few uh, actors that can claim to have been like literally uh, filmed peeing on screen. Like, yeah, like, literally him doing it, or at least having. I mean, unless he had a tube uh, taped to the back of his dick. This and uh, Sweet Movie. <laughs> Jason, don't watch Sweet Movie. No, I, I if it's if it, you know in, anything called X Movie, I don't have an interest in. It. Um, no, no, it's not like date movie. <laughs> no, what I was just thinking. Of no, like, like I was thinking more like a Serbian film. Yeah, it's along those lines. Not yeah. as bad, but no. yeah. Um, there's a sex scene in a big pile of sugar that's oh. really un- uh, unfortunate. There's also a, a feast where they all eat uh, uh, feces. Oh well, so Salo, it's like Salo. It's probably not as bad as Solo. There's okay. a lot more rape in Solo. <laughs> but, but, um, but yeah, he was going to elaborate on that. Like you said, the anachronisms, the cordless phone and everything like that. Um, <laughs> I like that the description, by the way, that, just talk, that talks about the three-hour film. It literally says, possibly to make the film easier to watch, Greenaway edited it to 103 minutes. That's a good, that's a good call. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I guess in the extended cut too, they actually um, made it a lot more obvious about the murder plot, mm. um, and and the, like I said, the reasons for the living statue, 
and also why Mr. Neville attached so many conditions to his contract were more developed in the mm. final version. And again, all this stuff makes me think I don't want to see the final version. Like that feels like too much is explained. Yeah, I, I, I would be interested to see it from a, like a scholarly perspective. But yeah, it, it doesn't sound like it would necessarily be a better movie. Yeah. Um. Apparently, too, that this movie uh, this movie was inspired by Peter Greenaway himself because apparently when he uh, was training as an artist. He actually did a similar thing, not to this whole movie. Mm. He didn't impregnate two ladies. <laughs> but he did a similar thing where he spent like three weeks drawing a house while holidaying with his family. And he did the same thing where he was like, he would like draw each day between these two particular hours just so it had like the same light and yeah. texture every time. Um, and apparently in the movie, when you see uh, Neville drawing and you see the close up of his hands, it's Peter Greenway. Oh, okay. Yeah. All the drawings are his. Nice. Yeah. Well, he's a pretty good, he's a pretty good artist. Pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. He's a pretty good artist, and Neville is a pretty good, um, I don't know, fucker? Yes, he's definitely a fucker. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do want to talk about Mr. Talman a little bit, because, like I said, he I talked about how he is, like, the impotent guy. Well, they, they do have a kid that they have with them that was, uh, the story is, is that he was the son of a lady that was, like, a relative or something that had converted to Catholicism, so they considered him an orphan and brought him to England. Yeah. Which I thought was... And then, and, and of course, Neville at one point gets a bit indignant, and he's like, you think he's an orphan because his mother converted to Catholicism? <laughs> like, uh, Which, to be fair, that was a big deal in England at this time, the, the Catholic-Protestant divide, you know, because they just fought a bunch of, like, civil wars, essentially, over that very fact. And in fact, uh, at one point... Um, Mr. Tallman says that uh, he's talking, for some reason, the word eradication comes up and he goes, Sir, the only eradication I wish to remember happened four years ago on my birthday. And I looked that up and that was the Battle of Boyne, which was when William of Orange, uh, it was kind of the definitive battle that put Ireland under the thumb of the United Kingdom once and for all, or at least until the 1920s. Jason, you say you don't do research, but like, come on. (laughs) I read it. Yeah, I read up a little bit. I just wanted to see. Uh, (laughs) But okay. So Mr. Tallman is, everything's happening right under his nose. He's not a smart guy, but he knows what love is. Yeah. But um, (laughs) there's like a scene of like, like every time he goes to pose because he's, he's in some of the pictures because Neville's idea is like, oh, I'm going to add in Mr. Herbert's face later. Yeah. So it, you know, represents him. But it's good yeah. to have uh, Tallman there because they're all they're all wearing the same wigs and shit. Yeah. So, but Tallman is like, I have to wear the same coat? Yeah. Ugh. And then I would like that the next day he shows up and he's like, well, I should assure you I'm not in the best of spirits. I'm wearing the same clothes from yesterday. Yeah. Do you know how many days in a row I've worn these pants? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it's funny actually back then because like that was a time when you where most people probably would wear their clothes for like weeks at a time. You know, it wasn't yeah. like you got to have a bath all that often. But that's how rich these people are that they can change their clothes on a daily basis. But then later, um, he finds out he finds out that uh, that his wife may have had a thing with Neville as well, mm. and he has this big explosion. I want to play this scene because not only is it showing like what he's like how he's reacting, but it's also showing how clever his wife is at, like, turning it around and, you know, going through with the plan they have. That's right. Let me ask you. Perhaps you can explain what your boots were doing in the sheep field. They were not my boots. And why was your undershirt idling on a hedge near the statue of Hermes? It was not my shirt! Can you not see the drift of this domestic inquisition? You were answering me as I could answer you. You cannot deny it is your dog! (sighs) And whereas, with your final accusation, you pursue the ambiguity of an abandoned sunshade, 
You, sir, are complete on paper. In a borrowed hat and a borrowed coat and a borrowed shadow, I shouldn't wonder. Posing, sir, with your knees tucked in and your ass tucked out and a face like a Dutch fig and a supercilious Protestant whistle, I shouldn't wonder, on your supercilious smug lips. And, Louis, you have always said that Mr. Neville has no imagination. He draws what he sees. Whose patrimony were you aping then? My father's. And the world knows that he is dead and is not certain who killed him. The world might peer at those drawings and ask what conspiracy of inheritance did Mr. Neville have for you? You are disreputable, madam. And you side with a tenant farmer's son against your husband. You have married the granddaughter of an army victualler. And there is nothing that I have said that suggests I side with Mr. Neville. But I hope you will agree that he has been useful to us all. What have you done with his drawings? I bought them for 600 guineas. I plan to destroy them. Oh, it would be a pity to destroy them. Ah! You are concerned that posterity will know of your duplicity. Louis, they contain evidence of another kind. A kind more valuable than that seized upon by those titillated by a scandal that smears your honor. So, yeah, I just like how that whole scene starts out. He's very offended, and he's obviously super insecure Yeah, that uh, she's been doing something with Neville. And she says, well, I think what you should be concerned about is that the, the, the articles of clothing and his paintings that seem to suggest he had something to do with my father's death. Mm. And then Talman is like, hmm. So she manipulates that entire yeah. scenario. I think even, like, the fact that she... Um, has Neville fuck her so that she, you know, she can have an heir. I think she's got that whole thing laid out. I think she's thinking that, and she's thinking that this jealousy thing is going to happen, mm. and she could turn Talman on him more. And she already knows Talman is not going to like Neville from the no, get go, which he clear. doesn't. He hates him. Yeah, no, he thinks he. Because at one point, what is he like? He's like, there's, there's no true British artist. Basically, like the, the idea of a British artist is a contradiction. And he really is needling him hard. Yeah. So one other quick thing I want to talk about before we get into uh, some bits and bobs. Sure. I think I have quite a few here, too. Mm. Um, but uh, are we even sure what we're seeing is what's happening? And I know that sounds like a lot, but there is a scene that made me think something is odd. Because um, there's a scene where, where uh, Neville comes back into the movie. Mm. And he's talking to Mrs. Herbert. And he says, like, listen, um, who is this Dutch man over here, this Dutch boy dancing around and being silly. I don't know what that's all about. And he's like, well, that's just that artist's style. And we see his art at one point when he's supposedly drawing what he sees, and it looks nothing like what we saw earlier. Mm. Like the representation of what he sees and what Neville sees, because these are not supposed to be like, oh, you know, you put your own artistic creativity in it. Mm. This is just draw what you see. Yeah. And it looks different. Like it's mm. almost like. Like, so I was like, oh, shit. Like, are, what are we seeing? Like, are we actually seeing what's happening? Or are we seeing what Neville thinks he's seeing? Like, You think he's like a Humbert Humbert type uh, unreliable pro- protagonist, perhaps? I mean, up until a certain point, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, assuming this movie is from his perspective. Yeah, that's... Uh... Again, if that's, tr- if that's true, it has to be up to a certain point. Because yeah. he gets motherfucking butchered. Yeah, and we do see scenes from other perspectives that don't involve him. Right. So maybe you're wrong. Maybe. 
You ever think about that? How no, wrong you are? I, can't, I haven't, and I won't. Oh. I refuse. Well, you're going to go far in this life, kid. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right all the time, damn it. You're a Karen in training. Our final double rank- down. Our final rankings of this list are going to be exactly the same, and if they're not, you're fired. <laughs> all right. Finally. God, God damn it, Jason. Don't look now. Better be number eight. <laughs> I've been trying for, for 75 movies to get fired, and finally. <laughs> Even though we haven't talked about 75. Nope. Well, I guess not including the list, if that makes sense. Jason, I think it's time to take a little bit of a break, and we're going to be back with some bits and possibly some bobs. All right, I can't wait. Age of Radio. Wow, 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 wow. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Bits and bobs. And bobs. And bits. We've got both. And more. With Jason. And Brandon. Bits and bobs. The first bit and bob I have to say, which is is obviously deserving more than just a simple bit or bob, so I want to elevate this beyond bit or bob into a grand statement. I want to give Sue Blaine, the costume designer of this movie, nothing but love and praise. Oh, yeah. The costumes in this movie are wonderful. They are extravagant. They are actually, as I understand, even a little cartoony. Like, they are a little exaggerated from this era, but man, they are cool. They are, (laughs) yeah, they are intentionally exaggerated. The big fucking the big wigs yes absolutely uh like the 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 costumes are so detailed i kind of chuckled when i saw them when i would see mr neville outside like drawing in the middle of summer and he's wearing like 19 layers and fucking gloves and a hat and he's got this huge wig on i was also uh very scared for them whenever they had torches nearby because i thought there there's no way those wigs are not super flammable i mean this is 1694 those wigs would just go up in a second I'm surprised more people didn't die from spontaneous wig combustion. I guess it's just not widely reported. Spinal Tap reference! My heart has gone back into my asshole. That's right. Um, no, I, I, my note is um, that maybe this is a weird reference for me to make, but I wrote down Tarantino when it came to the dialogue because it, it felt... Say, first off, there's, there's very few bare feet in this movie. So <laughs> no, let's just, not get too Tarantino here. Just when it came to the dialogue, because it felt like um, there were lots of scenes where they were just talking about yes. stuff. Yes, absolutely. And and um, we see a couple scenes like this, but early on specifically, there's a scene where they're all talking at the dinner table, and it's clearly all shot in one take. And it's literally just a camera on like a like a dolly track that is sliding back and forth down this long table as people uh, are talking and it, it follows this conversation in flow and it's an absolutely just really cool scene to watch a mm-hmm. uh, really cool way to shoot uh, just what would normally be just a pretty standard dialogue scene uh, at a table. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it's kind of fascinating. 
Uh, I do like the line early on where uh, uh, she explains the terms of the deal of him doing 12 drawings in 12 days and whatever. And he says, your terms are exorbitant and so shall mine be. Which it turns out, yeah, absolutely. Um, um, I like when he's, um, well, after he's ta- after um, Neville has drawn the garden, he's like criticizing it. But like clearly it's innuendo about her body parts. He's yes. like, the trees, the trunks need a little work. Or the- <laughs> oh, but the pears are well. And, you know, he's just, he's being real gross. He's getting really into Alan Bates territory for men, uh, women in love. It was close. Yeah. Uh. Or, or fucking Lawrence, is it Lawrence Olivier in um, Spartacus? It talks about oysters. Some men like oysters. like, <laughs> And it's all clearly a very gay metaphor. But that movie doesn't exist because we haven't talked about it. That's right. It, it just, uh, is it a British movie? I don't think so. No. Um, well, Stan- no, Stanley Kubrick is American. What am I talking is about? Is he? He is, yeah. He lived in Britain a long time. I was I was just as shocked as you were when I found that out. <laughs> um, I like that scene where they're they're in the garden and you have the rakers and they're all like synced up, like raking in, in, in sync with each other. That's just, again, another one that looked like a painting. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the, I like the transitions between his sketches and the real scenes. Mm-hmm. Like they, they did that well. Oh, and also the line uh, Neville said to Mr. Talman, uh, he said when, he, when he's getting in position for the second day to take the picture, and he's like, well, last time you were whistling a tune probably not even recognizable by its author. Yeah, ouch. <laughs> you're a bad, Fuck you. You're a bad singer, ne- Talman. <laughs> you can't even whistle right. Um, I, I enjoyed the scene where uh, Mrs. Talman goes to her mother, and she's crying, and it's clearly that she has not enjoyed the sexual experience that she has just had with Mr. Neville. She says, I'm grieving because Mr. Herbert is away. And her daughter clearly is not stupid and knows that there's clearly more going on uh, than that. See, I thought that scene was just – that was the scene I was talking about earlier where I thought that was them rehearsing. You think so? I thought that was them rehearsing, being like, okay, how are we going to act when Mr. Herbert is not here anymore? I suppose. It, Maybe. It's not, it's not, that's not clear from that scene. No, but no. Imply that, that It's not explicitly said either way. I just, I thought that I leg- genuinely I mean, maybe, because at the time my thought was that, oh, this woman is treating her daughter like a child and trying to like pull a fast one on her. But yeah. then in retrospect after the movie, okay, yeah, I see what you're saying. That Yes, maybe that was like part of their... Because, uh, I mean, they're working together, plan. right? Yeah. And, and, I mean, this whole movie really is about... Um, the power dynamics of the old days, isn't it's it? It's a heist. Yeah. It's a heist movie. It's a heist, baby. <laughs> and the heist is his semen. <laughs> and his life. Um, and, like, I thought early on that this was all, like, a, a desperate attempt to salvage their marriage on the part of Mrs. Herbert. So did I. Like, changed. I mean, it really changed. And it slowly changes. And as you're, like, going through it, you're like, wait a second. This movie is not about what I thought it was about. Um, also, uh, uh, <laughs> there's a line where Neville says... Uh, this the purpose of this is to enjoy the maturing delights of her country garden, mm. and I was like, so horny. Yeah, this movie's so horny. horny. Uh, the weird talking strips where they're having like a, a very frank conversation, and he's like undressing her, uh, and at one point he like cuts her bustier off her. Oh yeah, he just takes a knife to it. Yeah. Well, can you remember the earlier scene where they're about to have sex? He's like, "Oh, I see you've loosened your clothing as per requested." Yeah. So he doesn't have to go because I mean it takes a long fucking time to take that yeah, off. No, absolutely. So I understand that part. Women of Women had where... ridiculous clothes in those days. <laughs> I understand that part of it where he's like, "Do you mind loosening it before mm. you show up?" But then uh, later, interestingly, she doesn't do that. Yeah. So then, like you said, he takes a knife and just cuts the bustier yep. open. Yeah, he's. Uh... You can't use that anymore now. Uh, I also laughed when he when they're doing the when they're doing the sex. 
when they're doing the sex, Brendan, mm. and he says, "May I leave my hat on?" <laughs> oh, Neville. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. I also like when uh, Mr. Talman says, uh, "Neville, you complain to no limit," and this is like about two minutes after a scene where he said he didn't want to wear the same coat. Mm. It was like yeah. a, b- a big hypocritical moment. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Jason, there's a female masturbation scene in this movie. Is there? There sure is. How did I miss that? Well, uh, clearly, I don't know. Because that's I would I would be looking for that. <laughs> God damn it! But there's a scene. Well, you know, Mr. Talman is impotent. Yeah. There's a scene where um, Mrs. Talman is in bed with him. Yeah. And she turns over oh. and she puts her hand in a certain spot and she closes her legs up and makes like a little you know pl- I pleasured expression. It's funny because I was actually looking at Mr. Talman because it's the one time in the movie we see him without his wig and makeup on. Yeah. And I was like, oh, look at this, look at this doofus. I, I mean, I'm assuming that scene is like, well, he couldn't accomplish anything, so I'm just going to finish the night here. And good for her for being so progressive. Yeah, well, I mean, she had to hide pretty, uh, you know, it's yeah. good for her. But good for her. You know, too bad she, she should had know to what she, she, well, the, these two women clearly know what they want. Jason, I'm going to make a bold statement right now. I think in 1694, <laughs> females should have been allowed to masturbate. Absolutely. I stand by that. It was not a case of hysteria. It was no. just, it was just natural. <laughs> Let's see what else we got here. Uh, They all go crazy about what's in the drawings. They really are reading into this. Him drawing all this stuff in there. Um, Uh, The shot of Mister Herbert, like his dead body, getting dragged away, was gory. Mm. Like I thought, I was shocked by that because when they when they show, it's very matter of fact too. They're just like, "Oh, come at once!" And then we suddenly see Mister Herbert's corpse being dragged out of the water, just and hauled out of this fucking terrible water. This water that is covered in scum because Mister Herbert didn't want to see the fish. Yes, because that's his water, right? And he refuses. Now, okay, which is funny because the rest of the property is absolutely impeccable. Okay, whoa, hold on a second, because there's a detail early in this movie where they, they say the reason for that water being scummy is that Mr. Herbert just wants to look out and see it like a lawn. Yeah. But do you think that's really what it is? Or do you think that's like, oh, if the water looks shitty, it's going to take them a while to find his body? Shh. I mean, And possibly, then we can have it happen on whatever day we want. But that's the thing, is like, the that water was pretty scummy. I mean, I don't know that, like, if he left, and then I don't know that if two weeks elapsed, the water would look that bad if you had not done anything to it. I feel like it had been like that for a while. So. Oh, no, no, I, 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 yes, that for sure. But yeah. I'm saying, like, do you think that they, they were the ones that purposely for a while left it scummy? Um, told like you know the workers oh, yeah. don't don't treat the water. Yeah, they or may have very well been like, yeah, just don't touch that. Just yeah. let, let it go, and then yeah, then or had able to kind of. But but like had someone else tell the workers. But also, I feel like they're one step ahead of everyone. Well, they are one step ahead of everyone. But why would they like? Why would they dispose of the body there? Did they did they specifically need to find the body because it would seem more sense to drag it somewhere else rather than in front of their house? Well, I will say that in the three hour cut of this movie, yeah, there is a scene where um, Neville is going to. Um, that that's one of the locations where he's going to draw. Yeah, and in the, in the three hour cut, uh, Mrs. Herbert is like, uh, no, 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 not that one. Okay. Like that's the only place she says no. Okay, so then it makes more sense later on when he comes back and draws it as the thirteenth draw. Right, okay, right, yeah. Because yeah, exactly. Because she wants the, them those guys to like catch Neville at that moment in that scene at that crime scene. Yeah. Okay, I got you. Uh, let's see what else we got here. Uh, yeah. Oh, they want an heir. Um, I, I enjoyed though when she proposed she's like maybe perhaps we could have another liaison he's very happy about that what are you talking about when uh, Mrs. Herbert uh, near the end of the movie is like well maybe you know you're here and maybe we could have another liaison and oh, to Neville. very happy about that Neville yeah because yeah. he, he clearly really likes this woman he clearly likes having sex with this woman Talk, uh, talking about her tree trunks and her pears absolutely um, 
Let's see what else do I got here. Uh, they killed him. They the killed sh- him. They killed him. <laughs> they killed a man. She killed a man. Oh, can we actually... I got one more scene I do want to actually play for a second. It's the scene where... Okay, we mentioned Neville comes back later and has sex with uh, uh, Mrs. Herbert again. Mm. And this is where Mrs. Tallman walks in at the end, mm. by the way. And then he realizes... Yeah, then, she's just kind of hanging out there, standing watching. Well, she no, well, no, she's outside the room. Yeah. But she comes in at some point and he realizes, like, oh, they both... Like, they reveal it. Like, we both made you give us airs. That's the scene where we see Mrs. Herbert's titty. Yes. Yes. One tit. One tit. That's all you get, folks. Well, that's very artsy. It's very yeah. art uh, painting Absolutely. style. Um, but yeah, and and, and um, I just like the scene leading up to that where she's telling the story about Persephone and Hades, and he's not getting it at all. <laughs> so let's just listen to that real quick and uh, and talk thereafter. Which one? Should just say Persephone. Oh, pomegranates. Having been tricked into eating the fruit of the pomegranate. Mr. Neville. Persephone was forced to spend a period of each year underground, during which time, as even Mr. Porringer will tell you, Persephone's mother, the goddess of fields, of gardens, and of orchards, was distraught, heartbroken. She sucks, and she refuses, adamantly refuses, to bless the world with fruitfulness now. My Mr. Porringer and your Mr. Clancy try hard to defeat the influence of the pomegranate by building places like these, don't you think? And having built them and stocked them and patiently tended them, what do they grow? Why? The pomegranate. And we'll turn full circle again. Certainly a cautionary tale for gardeners, madam. And for mothers with daughters, Mr. Neville. But who knows, madam, pomegranates grown in England might not have such unhappy allegorical significance. Basically, Again, big women in love vibes. Yeah, well, well, yeah, yes. But in that scene, she basically says, like, you know, you've given me the gift of uh, a few pomegranates, and this is what it represents to me. And she tells about, like, Persephone, who was lured into the underworld by Hades, and and uh, Persephone's mother was so distraught that, uh, you know, the crops were barren and everything. And, and so he's like, oh! Well, in England, it probably means something less horrible. <laughs> That's his excuse. I'm pretty sure I'll figure out what happened in that story in Supergiant's video game, Hades, which I have not finished yet. Okay, there you go. Well, I, keep... bet you, I bet you that has all that in it. Stay tuned. Follow Jason at Jason D. McLeod. That's M-A-C-L-E-O-D on Twitter. And whenever I finish playing Skyrim again, I may go back to Hades. Okay. You will. Maybe. You're going to go to hell. I mean, yes, obviously. <laughs> at some point. Yeah, we all go to hell eventually. Jason. I'm going straight to hell. Hank Williams III, check him out. Do you have any more bits and bobs? Oh, uh, let me see here. One last thing, maybe. Or like I'm like Columbo. I got one last thing. Why do I one last thing here? Uh, no, actually, I don't. So there you go. Okay, there we are. Those are the bits, and those are the bobs. Jason, bits and bobs. Jason, I've got some some crazy news for you. Oh, <laughs> there's no Oscars and no Baftas. Oh, that's unfortunate. <laughs> I would have thought this would have got even like a costume nomination or something. Nothing. That's the thing. These poor low budget movies they can't compete. Sometimes they don't have the Harvey Weinstein behind them to advertise the shit out of it. But I mean, this movie. Okay, so this movie cost about three hundred and sixty thousand pounds. Wow. Um, and it made 
I don't know how accurate this is, but apparently in the in England it made about four hundred and twenty thousand. Okay, pounds. well, if that's the case, they paid for the movie and made a little bit of money. A little bit of money. I'm sure not a lot of money went mm-hmm. into additional marketing. So, uh, but this movie is received was received very well. Roger Ebert, uh, who gave the film a full four stars, Roger wrote, "What we have here is a tantalizing puzzle wrapped in eroticism and presented with the utmost elegance. All of the characters speak in complete, elegant literary sentences." All of the camera strategies are formal and mannered. The movie advances with the grace and precision of a well-behaved novel. See, now that's what I—that's something I wanted to say that I forgot to say. The the, the delivery of the dialogue in this movie is fantastic. Like, uh, I, I really thought that this is the sort of dialogue that often would feel like you were watching a play. Yeah. Like, that's the thing. Like, If, if you go watch, like, a high school production of Shakespeare, sometimes it's hard to... to like, you don't get the sense that the actors necessarily understand and believe what they're saying. Right. And But in this movie, I mean, obviously these people are professional actors, but even for professional actors, this sort of dialogue can be hard to kind of wrap your mouth around. I mean, and in a bad case, you end up with Star Wars Episode One, But in a good case, you end up with this, where clearly the people understand what they're saying and say it with gusto, and I, I, I really like that. Well, and it I mean, feels natural coming out of their mouths, even though it's kind of old and formal type language. And, and I mean, comparing it with, uh, you know, The Phantom Menace, I mean, this isn't just bullshit dialogue. No. It, all of it matters. It does. Absolutely. And if you listen to every line, every single line of dialogue in this, I swear to God, there's like three or four different things that they that they're that they actually mean. Yeah. At the same time. It's like the turning of the screw. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it, the writing is really good. Or the um, turn of the screw? I don't know. I didn't actually read it, but I've heard tell of it. Yeah, Return of the Screw is after the Empire no, Strikes the Back. the turn... Oh, I got you. It's the sequel. Return yeah. of the Screw. <laughs> <laughs> um, in, in Slant Magazine, a mildly positive Jer- Jeremiah Kipp said it was a first fledgling attempt at what he later perfected, but that modesty could be seen as a virtue, since there is indeed some form of narrative here instead of the non-linear compulsive list-making and categorization that drives some people crazy about his other films, Peter Greenway. Yes. The story marches forward like a death march and is resolved with merciless efficiency. Actually, along that lines, his first mo- movie was a movie called Fall, I think, or The Fall. Something, uh, yeah. And it's basically, like, it literally is that. It's a list. It's like, um, it's, it's, it's the F-A-L-L section of, like, a post-apocalyptic assembly of data of, like, people that lived before an apocalypse or something. Like, and it's a mockumentary stuff. Yeah, it, it sounds like a really fascinating uh, piece of film, if not entertaining, at least interesting. It's something that I kind of want to seek out yeah. just for the very existence of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a neat kind of art film. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, this this movie for sure is a much more, I would say, coherent and conventional type of movie, even if it's not a conventional type of period drama. Uh, the Falls. The Falls, okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, this is a very, I mean, a, compared to what I think that movie, The, the Falls, is, mm. this is a much more mainstream yeah. movie. It's like when David Lynch made The Elephant Man. It was still weird, yeah. but it was, you know, more mainstream. <laughs> so I guess that's basically it, uh, Jason. So I will ask you, will you sign... The draftsman's contract. If by that you mean that would I let the draftsman come over and fuck me so that he could draw pictures on my house? Sure. Why not? I mean, eight pounds a day. Eight pounds isn't that much in modern money. It's like what? Like 15 bucks maybe? Is it? Yeah, well. So 15 bucks for a drawing for 12 drawings. I mean, you know, that's a few hundred dollars, but I could probably swing it. Okay. And, you know, it'd be nice to, it'd, be, it'd just be nice to be loved, you know? Right. I mean, my wife loves me, sure, but not in the same way that a, 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 six, a 17th century artist could really love me. True. So, yeah. 
So the movie. Oh, the movie. Oh, okay. So the movie. What do I think of the movie? Yeah, yeah. Tell me about the movie. Okay. Well, I thought this movie was really good. Mm-hmm. I really like this movie. I I was unfortunately buckling up for a stuffy another stuffy costume drama. Um, you know, a, a go between, and, and don't get me wrong, I love Julie Christie, but you know, a go between is a stuffy. Go between is fine. It's fine. I mean, yeah. the, the, you know, the past is a foreign country; they do things differently there. Right. You never. But you're always going to remember. I'm that. always going to remember that. But uh, this was, yeah, it was just, it was so like edgy for a 1981. Like it was really. Yeah. Giving these like real humans, real human emotions and real human plots. The year that this movie was released kind of hints that it's not going to be a typical. Yeah. Because it's it's enough of a modern-ish film that you're like, okay. And Peter Greenaway is enough of an odd director. I guess that's the question I'll put out to the audience since, again, Google doesn't really work for me. Um, what uh, what other costume dramas came out in like 1982 or 1981, like in that era? Like... Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, well, okay, sure. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> We, we we saw uh, Gobler in his uh, most famous role. <laughs> yep. But uh, no, I, I really like this movie. This is a really good costume drama. It was really entertaining. Um, and it was not what I thought it was going to be at all. And, and I have nothing but praise for it and recommend it highly. Uh, I'm, I'm really surprised. I, I'm totally shocked too. Because yeah. again, I spent the first 10, 15 minutes being like... Okay, well, I mean, the dialogue is good so far, but, you know, is this going to be slow? And it just, it, it does, I mean, I don't want to say it moves, but, yeah. like, you know, it's con- consistently entertaining. Yeah, it, um, it feels far more modern than maybe a costume drama at that time would feel. Like, yeah. even more modern than that uh, uh, Hell in the Bottom Carter one. What was that called? Yeah, Room of the View. Room of the View, yeah. yeah. I mean, and, that, and that's a perfectly fine movie, but this this just has that, that edge to it. That it is, does. It, it's sinister. it has a sinister edge to it. Yeah. Like I said, it, it's rated R. Has a sinister urge, you might say. I would say that. Ooh. Soundtrack by Slipknot. Oh, I was going to say Rob Zombie. Both. I think he had an album called they The can, Sinister Urge. They can work together. Ooh. Oh, wah! Oh, wait, that's disturbing. That's disturbing. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, no, I, I really do like this movie. Um, again, like Jason just said, way more than I thought I was going mm. to. Um, the the title looked totally snorifying. Yeah, we, we literally thought that this was going to be another Caravaggio where it was like, oh, it was interesting, but it was really boring ultimately. And despite the performances, you know, it wasn't didn't really hold together for us. But then it, you know, it did. It absolutely. The only thing about Caravaggio that rang true for me is that Sean Bean's character was killed. Yes, absolutely. As, as, as it, it should be. As it should be. The only thing that made sense. And there was anachronisms in that movie too. Well, yeah, but, but we don't really see them in this one. Is what no, I'm, I'm just saying, but like they almost did in this one. Yeah, they almost did, but they didn't. Almost did. I, I, you know what? I'm going to say it. Kind of want to see that three-hour cut. I know I've I been, do, yeah. I've been deriding it because yeah. of what I think is included in it, but I kind of want to see it. But I, I think there's a lot of questions that we could have answered by it. Whether, yeah. whether we should have them answered or not, it would be. And it would be neat, neat to see that. I mean, it's like when the Star Wars special edition came out. I was like, I want to see it, but I don't think it's better than the original. That's the thing. And I'll say this right now on the record. Uh, outside of Greedo shooting first and maybe that shitty um, uh, Jabba scene, there's not a whole lot that I don't like about the special edition. I mean, maybe there was too much in Moss Eisley, but like ultimately I think the changes made were good outside of a few of those like character changing moments like, yeah I especially think, when you get into later movies like and, and again maybe excluding that jedi thing in return of the jet or the jedi dance yeah don't need that and yeah. i also don't need jabba in the first one yeah exactly that's yeah. what i'm saying oh that's what you mentioned that yeah, 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 yeah. One. but yeah so star wars good movie check it out <laughs> 
<laughs> at your local Blockbuster video store. Absolutely. It's pretty obscure. Uh, I don't know if it's streaming anywhere, but... They recently uh, remastered it in THX for the first time, so yeah, check T- it out. Yeah, THX 1138. Yeah. <laughs> they just put the other movie over it. They just, they just digitally inserted Robert uh, Duvall into Star Wars. Please. Every, every character. I would love to see that, yeah. Oh, well, there's a lot of... Uh, <laughs> A lot of stars and a lot of wars going on. Right I now. don't think there's a line in the actual movie. <laughs> now, that's a name I've not heard in a long, long time. I don't know why I'm doing Robert Duvall as Robert E. Lee, but I can't help it. As Obi-Wan Kenobi. Because his most iconic role, of course, was Robert E. Lee in the 2003 uh, mess, Gods and Generals. Yep, but not as or good 2000, as... Or 2003? Maybe? But not as good as the film I starred in. Copperhead. Copperhead, the, the greatest of the Ron Maxwell trilogy. Yeah, uh, I was the lead actor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you replaced Jason Patrick, I believe. I, I did. My name is <laughs> William Campbell. Uh, now, Brendan, let me ask you, just yes, as, I am as a, an actor. Yes, I am a rocketeer. Did you get to meet Jason Patrick? Uh, <laughs> I didn't meet him, but I did walk past him during a scene that uh, we shot, and he had a perma scowl on his face. <laughs> and then he was fired a week later. So there you go. He wasn't happy there. No, it's I don't think so. I did meet Billy Campbell, and he was the sweetest man Aww. ever. What else has he been in? And I was really drunk and told him that I liked The Rocketeer a lot. Oh, there we go. There we go. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, like it was totally normal. And I was like, oh, thank God. Because <laughs> I, I give more credit to him. <laughs> but Billy Campbell, my friend, was not in NARC. He was not. Um, hey, Jason Patrick, he's solid, but I don't think he was a very nice man. It's a shame. It's a shame. It's a shame he didn't appreciate our local area. By the way, folks, uh, unless you want to see Brendan, don't watch Copperhead. But you do. But you do, so check it out. I'll watch the trailer. I'm in the I'll trailer. tell you what. Uh, go to uh, 1337x.to. Don't and, advertise uh, that. Maybe see what's there. I don't know. <laughs> no, no. Cut. Cut. <laughs> Just watch the trailer. I'm in the trailer. Yeah, okay. Awesome. Wonderful. Brendan's like that one guy you always see in the background, but he's just so prominent because he's got a, such a look to him. Yeah, I'm like that guy that, um, I'm like that character that gave birth in the background of Community. You're, you're, you're yes, you're actually pretty much like Rob Schneider in any Adam Sandler movie, except you don't say anything. Right, exactly. Uh, thank, uh, that would be the dream if he didn't yes. say anything in those movies. Uh, <laughs> so, Jason, we've come to the part, the point of the show where we're going to find out what we're talking about next week. All right. On this list. So, Jason has two dice. He has a red uh, red D10 and a green 10s D10. Yes. He's going to roll the green one first. And we, anyway, we're going to find out what number on the BFI Top 100 that we're going to talk about next week. And folks, it's so nice to be back with the physical dice. I tell you, it's not the same on Google, but that's just for you. I want you to keep that secret. It's going to be a bloodbath. Going to have a jailbreak. All right, Jason, what, right. what decade of the list are we at? The decade of the list is the 90s, which we just came from, didn't we? You better roll oh, a fucking nine. Carry on up the Kyber, baby. Oh. Let's do it. Number nine coming come up. On, come Arr. on, come on. Oh, 94. You goddamn son of a bitch. We already did the Bells of St. Trinity. All right, well, let's try again here. I'm so mad. I know, we were so close. <laughs> so close. Uh, 20s. 20s. Uh, okay. Is anything left? Uh, yes, there is. All right, all right, ladies and gentlemen, here we go. 28. Oh, Jason, you're going to be happy about this one. We are talking about a comedy classic. We are talking about Monty Python's Life of Brian. Fucking right. Brian, the man they call Brian. 
I Jason, love that theme song. Jason is not a fan of this film. I have seen this movie so many times, and I am absolutely chuffed to be watching it again. There we go. Life of Brian. That's I even have one. this on Criterion DVD somewhere in my basement. Oh, yeah. Guys, if you're wondering where to find this, it's out there. It's out there. You it's can there. you can see it anywhere you need to. We got John Cleese. We got Michael Palin. We got Graham Chapman. We got Terry Gilliam. We got Terry Jones. We got Carol Cleveland. We got Neil Innes. We got everybody. Jason's very excited about this movie. I am a huge Monty Python fan, and I'm more than happy to talk about Monty Python's Life of Brian. I think we can spoiler alert the fuck out of this one. Yeah. I think we both <laughs> like it. Yeah. But we're going to talk about that next week. Monty Python's Life of Brian, number Fucking 28 sweet. on the list. Uh, but until then, Jason, they can follow you on Twitter at Jason D McLeod. That's M A C L E O D. Stop by. We can talk about religion. Uh, we can talk about uh, Jesus Christ, lust for glory, the original version of life of Brian, as Eric Idle said at a press conference. Save us for next week. All right. <laughs> uh, and you can also, if you want to get into some, if you want to tweet Jason, you actually have to sign a pretty long contract. Yes, but it's worth it. And, uh, but beware, you have to to be available for my pleasure. Oh my God. In private. Um, and then you can also follow us obviously on Twitter at BFI underscore pod. You can find us on Facebook. Just search for, for screen and country. And we're on all the podcast apps. You know where to find us. You just search it up, man. We're somewhere, we're somewhere below daily zeitgeist, but probably somewhere above like, I don't know. Gertrude's podcast. That's right. Gertrude. Fuck Gertrude. She's got three listeners. Nobody cares. Gertrude. And one, of them, fire. and one of them is Gertrude and one of them is Gertrude's mom. Yeah. Gertrude's mom. But she's great. She's a great listener to have and we're trying very hard to get her. And Gertrude's mom, if you're listening now, thank you. And if you're not, get on this train, baby. Weirdly enough, Gertrude's mom podcast, 56 mm-hmm. listeners. She's she's a hustler, that one. She's a hustler, baby. Ooh. Okay. We got to get off this right. fucking show. <laughs> uh, so... That, that's that's all um yeah so do that do that stuff do all that stuff that we talked about please please god please ageofradio.org slash for screening country email us for screening country at gmail.com shoot us an email tell we, us what you we think. would love to have an email because alan allen or island allen elon allen elon elon's the only one that ever emails us so elon we appreciate it but anybody else send us an email send us an email i don't care what the we're gonna pretend is. we're gonna party like it's 1999 and get yeah. some emails yeah uh, but other than that, uh, Jason, I will just say uh, to you, we're going to talk about Monty Python next week. Yes. And uh, but for now, God save the queen. God save the screen. And for screening country, I'm Brendan and I'm Jason. Sign it. Oh, I'm a Gumby from Monty Python. Don't own in the movie. Save it for next week. Oh, the painter stood. colors from the air green to green red to red yellow to yellow in the light black to black when the evening comes blue to blue in the night It's a long